we pass on the narrative that women's sexual health is complicated because we haven't taken the time to figure it out, to learn about it, to tease it out, to train our physicians, to train each other and to talk about these things in a systematic way that can make it more approachable. And so I honestly think that when we talk about how complicated women's sexual health is, it's a cop out. Welcome to episode 163 of the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Schlag, and that was Dr. Lindsay Harper. You just heard on that clip. She is my special guest today. Dr. Harper is an OBGYN in Dallas, Texas. She's also the founder and CEO of Rosie, a first-of-its-kind app and media platform that offers personalized solutions for sexual wellness. Dr. Harper created Rosie when she couldn't find modern and accessible resources to help her patients. Dr. Harper was also named one of Forbes' top 53 women disrupting healthcare. And today we sit down and talk all about women's sexual health in perimenopause and menopause. Let's go. Lindsay, hi. Well, hello, Kim. So great to see you. Thrilled that you are here, Dr. Harper. We have so much to discuss today. Now, we met in Dallas at um, on the Menopositivity Tour. We were both on the Menopositivity Tour with Women S and Ulta and had such a great chat. And I appreciate you agreeing to come and talk to me here and continue our conversation. I'm happy to do it. That was such a fun tour. I loved the energy that we all had, that the room had. Like You could just feel that you know, people want to talk about all these things that we're so passionate about. And it's so fun to get that feedback and feel, feel that, you know, excitement. Absolutely. Because a lot of the topics we're talking about are things that people do want to talk about, even though they feel a little uncomfortable and it's not like typical conversation. So, right. Exactly. That's always been my experiences. Oh, sorry. Is there a lag? I think there was a little bit of a lag. Let's see what's going on. Okay. We'll just keep okay. talking and we'll, we'll work it out. Listen, let okay. me ask you, let me ask you this question. You mentioned to me backstage that so often the conversation around William, women's sexual functioning is in terms of it's complicated. And then you asked like, but is it though? Is that the problem? Why do you think one, that this is how women's sexual health is so often couched in those terms? Yeah. And why do you think that that's not actually the real issue? Yeah, I, you know, it frustrates me to no end when I hear women's sexual health, women's sexuality described as complicated because, you know, while there are many um, different aspects of our life that affect our sexual health, I think it's no different than our fitness, right? Like there are things that we've learned that might affect our fitness. There are things that we do that might affect our fitness. There are medical things about us and mental health things about us that affect our fitness. But at the end of the day, we can break all of those down. All of of those um, different aspects are available to us. And I think we, we pass on the narrative that women's sexual health is complicated because we haven't taken the time to figure it out, to learn about it, to tease it out, to train our physicians, to train each other and to talk about these things in a systematic way that can make it more approachable. And so I honestly think that when we talk about how complicated women's sexual health is, it's a cop out. And I don't appreciate it because it doesn't do any of us any favors. We put it in this mystery box that is really hard to approach, really hard to talk about, rather than saying first A, then B, then C, then D. And in each of those categories, here are the solutions. And that way it feels approachable and attainable 
and hopeful for women. But when we say it's complicated, we kind of set it to the side and we don't really visit it again because we don't even know where to start. So I think we do women a big disservice to ourselves, right? Because I think we might think that as well because that's what we've been taught, but also as a society and as a medical community when we repeat that narrative. Yeah, and it seems like with both scientific inquiry and with physician training, women's sexual health is lagging far behind men's sexual health. I read somewhere on your website that there are 26 FDA-approved medications addressing men's sexual dysfunction and only two that do the same for women. Yes, and those two are not routinely covered by insurance. So they're, you know, $700, $800 a month for women where men, the FDA-approved medications, many of them are now generic. So they're getting them for $4, you know, and the, the, prescribers that prescribe the FDA approved medications for women are few and far between because these drugs haven't been well publicized or covered. So there's a huge discrepancy, not only in the number of available interventions, but also the insurance coverage for those interventions, the physician training for those physicians. And at the beginning of the problem is the research and development for these solutions, right? And and the pro one of the problems is the end of the line. It, you're not going to spend a lot of money on research and development for a particular medical problem if you don't think that that intervention will ever be reimbursed. So we've got to really start and say, hey, women's sexual health is important. Here's why it's important. Here's why we should be investing in it. Here's why we as women should be demanding more for ourselves, because not only does that help to lift up the avail available interventions, but it helps to fund the future interventions that are not yet available to us. Oh, that's important information. That's really yeah. important. And, you know, going along with that, I was thinking about how um, the double whammy that menopausal women face, you know, so there's this lack of training um, that, you know, OBGYNs don't necessarily feel equipped to deal with talking about their patient's sexual health. Right. And then we get to the part of menopause and so many OBGYNs lack training in menopause and how to manage that. And so now women who are in menopause and having sexual health problems, they've got this big double whammy, right? Sure. <laughs> Who's helping yeah. them? Exactly. And that's, you know, honestly, it's exciting to hear the conversations that are happening and to be a part of those. But there is such a gap between where we are today and where we need to be and really what we as women need and deserve and, and have access to. And I think that when we think about sexual health during and after menopause, you know, a, a huge problem is lack of lubrication, vaginal dryness, which can result in sexual pain. And actually most OBGYNs are pretty good at managing that. It's actually very straightforward in terms of a lubricant or, you know, a vaginal hormone to increase lubrication. If you're a straightforward low risk factor patient, um, it becomes a little bit more complicated, potentially with the history of breast cancer or something like that. Um, but we are pretty good at managing that. I would say where we kind of fall off is evidence-based treatment for those more global symptoms like insomnia, like hot flashes, like, you know, cognitive decline, osteoporosis, heart disease, things like that, because the information has been so mixed. Um, and there are a lot of us trying to clear up that misinformation, um, you know, both to, to women and patients, but also to healthcare providers, because there's a huge gap between where we are today and where we need to be in addressing those really common and bothersome and overall detrimental, you know, symptoms for women. Yeah. Let's talk about some of these symptoms. Let's talk about some of 
um, you know, the most common concerns that women over 40 might bring to you. So talk yeah. to me more, um, you were talking about, you know, the need for vaginal lubrication. Yeah. Uh, the term I know is genitourinary syndrome, syndrome of menopause, which is quite a mouthful, but I definitely think it's a step up from the old term, which was vaginal atrophy. Cause yeah, yeah. <laughs> That has a lot of negative connotations. <laughs> like our vaginas are just like shriveling up and dying here, right? Yeah. I do think it's good that they changed the name. Tell us more about like, what is that and why does it happen? Yeah, I really like the name change too, because it encompasses the full picture of things. So just to break it down, genito, which means like the genitals, right? So the vulva, everything you can see on the outside, which is the, you know, the labia, the clitoris, um, the urethra. And then urinary, genitourinary. So urinary refers to the urethral tract, so where the urine comes out. And then um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So we call it GSM because it is quite a mouthful. But syndrome just means a set of symptoms. Um, and then obviously menopause. So those symptoms are related to menopause. And this all goes back to the decline of estrogen and actually testosterone as well that we experience, you know, definitely after 40, but particularly as we continue to age, those numbers just decline pretty rapidly. And estrogen has many functions in the vulva and the urethra. Um, one is to keep the tissue nice and thick, right? So that it has it can um, tolerate friction like during intercourse or penetrative sex. The other is to create its own natural lubrication. And that natural lubrication keeps it at a certain healthy um, pH, which keeps good bacteria high and bad bacteria low. And these can prevent things like vaginal infections and urinary tract infections. So when the tissue of the vulva and vagina starts to thin, it becomes less elastic, so it's less stretchy. It stops creating its own moisture, and also the bacterial composition changes because of the lack of moisture, then we are kind of ripe for problems, right? Sexual pain, tearing, like little micro tears after and during sex, um, increased bacterial and um, yeast infections, and also those urinary tract infections. So it all happens in a concentrated space, but there's many different things that are going on, which can result in different symptoms in the vulva and vagina. And what kind of symptoms are most common if somebody is experiencing GSM? I would say the most common that people report is sexual pain. And they don't come in saying necessarily, I have vaginal dryness. They usually come in saying, I'm having pain with sex and not necessarily connecting the two things. That happens in about 50% of women during and after menopause. And so, and other women might notice just the need for more lubrication. So they might never come to the physician because they can use over-the-counter lubrication and solve that problem for themselves because it's not as dramatic. But if, if you're having more vaginal infections, if you're having more urinary tract infections, or if sex is painful on a regular basis, those are definitely all reasons to see your gynecologist because vaginal hormones can really correct, you know, all of those issues and they don't absorb systemically. So they just go in the vagina. They work where they need to in the vagina and vulva, but they're not going to your breasts. They're not going to your brain. They're not going to your bones. So you're not going to get the systemic or the whole body effects of those of those hormones. So for some women who don't want to take hormones for whatever reason, they might still be, you know, open to vaginal hormones just because they're working on only those tissues. And so that's the that's the um first line treatment then for for GSM is for GSM. estrogen. 
vaginal estrogen, but then there are also other um, hormone precursors like vaginal DHEA, um, which is a precursor to estrogen, and it can get trans uh, transferred in the body to estrogen and testosterone. So that's something that not many people know is that there are also testosterone receptors on the vulva, which can help to contribute to you know sexual pleasure, arousal, orgasm. So I also really like to use vaginal DHEA. Um, in many cases, there's an FDA-approved product for that as well because you can get estrogen and testosterone from that medicine but once again we don't really have great coverage by insurance so sometimes you know financial concerns can be a problem they do offer coupon cards from the manufacturer that can help address some of those concerns but that why that might be why some people lean towards estrogen rather than dhea because of the cost concerns got it that makes sense um so you've mentioned like this whole like being covered twice now like what do we do to get that change like where does that change come from is it going to come yeah pressure from physicians? Does it come from, you know, how do women create this change, right? If they see that this is a need, how do we make that happen? Yeah, it is. Honestly, it's so frustrating. Um, It comes usually from government funded plans. So for example, Medicare, so the plans that are 65 and above cover all these erectile dysfunction drugs, they cover penile implants, which is a surgery for men with erectile dysfunction and have failed other other things. I worked at the VA in an erectile dysfunction clinic as a medical student. So the, the, the government fully funds men's sexual health, but when it comes to women's sexual health, we just are not getting that attention. And because of that, then the commercial payers follow suit and the rest of us don't get the medicines we need, whether we're funded through a government program or through a commercial plan. And so, you know, this is a lot of the work actually that we're working on is like, and I know other companies are as well. It's not just us, but it's like, how do we get payers and really third party, you know, participants to care about women's sexual health, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have to necessarily have this argument for men because here's the difference when you get down to it, men demand better erections. Like they knew when Viagra was coming to market that that was going to fly off the shelves because men do seek out better sexual health for themselves. Women have been, we've been, we've grown up with a different narrative, which is that, you know, we just kind of like grin and bear it. We pee on ourselves when we jump or cough or sneeze. Right. And that, we, that is a normal accepted that's normal. part of life. That is so we normal. Don't, yeah. We don't sleep. We're moody during menopause. We're, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of this has been passed down to us as like the woman's plight as to where men have been brought up to be like, well, you deserve a healthy erection, right? So when we go to market with these medicines and, you know, there's, there's different appetite, honestly. So it's really about making women understand that they deserve all of these things, right? Just like they deserve to, you know, take control of their lives in all aspects, whether it's fitness, whether it's business, whether it's their health, we've got to empower ourselves with the knowledge, the language, and the confidence that we need to take action on these things. And one of those is owning our own sexual health. And so that when these drugs come to market, there will be an appetite, meaning women will want them because they know that they deserve the same, you know, healthy sort of sex sexual life as their partners are, are demanding and getting now for free because it's covered. <laughs> well, I, I'm 
hopefully conversations like this will help. Yeah, right? you know, hopefully so. Hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, part of that. So for us, what we're trying to do from a research perspective is tie sexual health to other indicators. So to overall life satisfaction, to levels of anxiety and depression, to levels of productivity, to levels of distress in, in relationships. And we're hoping that some of those arguments and results might be the first step towards mm -hmm. the bridge of getting things, you know, paid for by these, by these third smart. parties, like payers and things yeah. like that. So we're working on it. It's a long road. It's not that's a short game. Smart. That's for sure. So let's talk about another common concern for women as far as their sexual health, which is right in line with what we're talking about here, which is the loss of libido in menopause. Yeah. First talk to me about like, how common is that? And then what is causing it? I'm assuming yeah. it's the lack of estrogen again. Yeah. It's super duper common, honestly. Like, so if you pulled all women ages 18 to 65, 38% of women would say that they had low desire. So not even just a menopausal problem, but mm. it's a problem across the board, but it becomes much more dramatic at menopause. And there's many reasons for that. The first is the hormonal change, right? So when your reproductive hormones kind of go down and stay down, then your body just isn't in as much of a, um, physiological driven state to seek out sex, right? You're not seeking out sex for reproduction. It's not driven by those things anymore. So we often become driven more by seeking out pleasure. We become driven more by increasing intimacy with partners. And so sometimes it takes a little bit to tap into those new um, sources of motivation and figure out how to harness that. So for many women, what we talk about is the difference between spontaneous desire, which is what we might experience when we're younger, driven from a more physiologic place, switching over to responsive desire, which is more like, okay, I want to be intimate because I want to seek pleasure. I know this feels good and I know it's good for my health. And secondly, I want to increase intimacy with my partner. And so in that model, sometimes we have to seek out things that kind of turn us on, right? And that increase our libido. So that could be, you know, reading a sexy book, which we, you know, found under some of our grandmother's beds when we were growing up, right? So this is not a novel idea, but what is novel is now we have the data to back it up. So for women who say that they have low desire, you know, definitely there are FDA approved medications for those women and hormonal replacement can go a long way, but it can be as simple as sort of getting the engine going, right? So reading erotica or one of my favorite sex therapists says, you don't have to wait to get horny to have sex. You can have sex to get horny. So it's kind of like going to the gym, Kim, which you might, you know, advise your clients. Like I'd rather really kind of sit on the couch and watch Netflix and like have, an, uh, have a glass of wine. But I know that if I get on whatever, you know, if I start to lift or if I get on the Peloton or whatever I do, that I'm going to feel so good, you know, and if I can get that thought process ingrained into my habits, it's just like that, where we know that there's like a reward for us at the end. So, but we have to think about it a little differently than maybe we once did. But all that to say that there definitely is a hormonal component, which can lead to dryness, which can lead to pain. If you're having pain with sex, you're not going to want to have sex. Like that's a very logical progression. So that needs to be addressed. But also if you were, you know, if your estrogen and testosterone are low, generally speaking, then not, you know, sometimes it's worth a conversation with your provider about systemic hormone replacement therapy as well. So the point of me saying all of that is that it's very common, but it doesn't have to be your situation if you don't want it to be. Mm -hmm. There are interventions that can improve desire, both behavioral, so things we can do without medicine, but also things that involve medicine as well. 
Yeah. So the hormonal piece, like you said, if you're having pain, that's certainly not going to help. And then we just think, I was just reading in a group I'm in this morning of menopausal women. And this woman, it was like three paragraphs about how she feels so terrible. She's so moody. She's like, I've only been married four years. I have this great husband. I'm always yelling at him. What is wrong with me? Mm. I'm just so moody. So we have all of these other things happening mentally, right? You know, and totally tired because we've been up with hot flashes and even just our life circumstances. When we get to menopause, right? We have we have our teenagers where we're right. helping and our aging, aging parents, parents, right? And so exactly. it's like this whole cluster of circumstances. That Absolutely. Like a real holistic and approach. It seems like it's going to be necessary to help here. Absolutely. We need support from our providers. We need support from our peers. We need access to, you know, all the tools so that we can make informed decisions about what is best for us in our specific circumstances. And I'm super passionate about that because I think we as physicians can recommend things, but if they don't land with our patients, our patients are never going to follow through. They're never going to be, you know, adherent with with what we're recommending. So it's really all about that shared decision-making. What's available to you is my job to present, right? And then you get to pick what feels right for your life, for your personal preferences and the specific problems that you're experiencing. But you're right. It's not just hormones. It's also not sleeping. It's also mood changes, which are so real. We, uh, we identify those and call those out in puberty, right? We know our kids are going to be moody in puberty and we kind of, but we kind of take it on our own as our own fault during menopause as like, oh, she's so grumpy. And it's like, well, no, that we are having major hormonal changes that result in changes in the brain that show up as mood symptoms. So when we're not addressing each and every one of those, then there's definitely going to be effect on sexual function for sure. Yeah. You know, it comes, I I think often about how before puberty, we really prepare people. We prepare these kids. You remember like you get the little packet in fifth grade Yeah, (laughs) with like the little book, there's a class, you get little products. Like there's nothing that's quite like that, that we don't know. We don't all as, you know, women in our forties and heading into our fifties, like have a a class with the assigned um, reading materials. And I think that so much more we're having conversation. I still don't see women necessarily like friend to friend. Like when I get together with women, I don't see women having these conversations there most of the time. Right. But I do feel like online, um, we are seeing this conversation really swell now. And I think that's that's only going to help. But yeah, um, I do see all of these factors kind of coming together. Another factor I see really impacting women and I know this as a trainer because I, I talk to women all the time about the discomfort they have in their changing bodies. And I am sure that that has an impact on their sex life sure. as well, right? So when women come to you and one of the things they say is like, I'm uncomfortable with my body. Like, I don't want to have sex because I'm really uncomfortable with yeah. my weight, with how I feel and how I look. Like, what what can we do to help them? Totally. So this was a huge learning curve for me. So I started a company called Rosie. Rosie is an app that women can download on their phone. That's all about sexual health. And something that we learned very early on that was not well identified, at least in the medical literature, was how common body image concerns are. 67% of users on our platform report that they have a neg- they have a neutral to negative body image. And so I would, you know, really, we leaned into that very heavily and, and partnered with the therapist and said, hey, how can we help our users with this concern? Because it's clearly such an issue for so many of us. And, you know, I think that um, we're raised, and I hear it from, 
I hear it in my own words, which I've worked really hard to change over time, but I know where it came from, right? We are grow up as girls, as women, hearing our moms and our sisters complain about their bodies incessantly. Oh, my arm in that picture, or oh, like, my, I got my belly is, you know, pooching over my jeans or I look so fat, like, let me retake that. And so whenever I started learning more about this, I intentionally now am like, whatever, like I look how I look and my goal is really to feel good in my body, but that is not just an overnight thing, right? The, the, the work really happens in how we talk to ourselves, both the, the words we speak out loud and the words that we are saying to ourselves internally. And I learned from one of my really good friends, Sasha, Sasha Shilkut, who's also a physician, and she works with a lot of other physicians on leadership training and things that we can be our own worst enemy. Like we are our internal narratives about our abilities and our day-to-day -day lives, but about our bodies as well, sometimes are, you know, the worst things that we can poison ourselves with. So if we can work on, you know, removing maybe one of those thoughts or replacing one of those thoughts each day, and maybe it takes three or four years to kind of get to a place where you're not talking meanly to yourself on a regular basis. And you just get to a place where you're like, this body made three babies. This body, you know, helps me to do my job that I love to do every day. This body can lift, you know, whatever, however much weight. This body can bike, you know, 20 miles, whatever it is. It's like the the marker of sexuality doesn't have to be flat abs and, you know, bony arms. Like that's not necessarily what it's all about. There are other ways that we can feel really powerful and come to not only ourselves, but our partnerships feeling empowered and full of, you know, zest for relationships and for intimacy that don't involve losing weight. And I think that that's so important for us to kind of internalize, not only for other people around us, but more importantly, obviously for ourselves. Yeah. Good stuff. I'm reading a book with the women in um, my Aging Stronger Society. That's my monthly membership. And we're doing, we started a book club and we're reading the book called More Than a Body. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I'm not, but it sounds it's a, good. It's a fantastic book. Um, two sisters, they're twins, um, okay. PhDs, and they wrote this book. And it's all about how we as women have learned to self-objectify ourselves, that we look at ourselves from at some point, usually in our childhood, and it can happen pretty early on. Um, and we start looking at ourselves from outside and right. thinking about how our body looks like we're not experiencing life in our body, mm. but we're experiencing life as we look at ourselves and how other people are seeing at us and judging us. And then we like self judge. We do and, that. Yeah. And um, one of the things they say is that our body is an instrument, not an ornament. And so that we should be looking at how we can experience life rather than how we're looking as we're experiencing life. The book is fantastic. It I love that. Change how we're trying to experience this. And what you were saying there about our thoughts is so important. Whenever we're trying to, um, you know, shift our thoughts, like really recognizing those thoughts is the first thing, like thinking like, exactly. oh my gosh, like, did I just say out loud something about bat wings or whatever it is? Like even right. that first step of noticing how negative we are either in our mind or out loud is such a big first step to being then able to like ask ourselves, like, is that a useful thought? Right. <laughs> is is that, that serve me? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, trying to replace it with, you know, something totally different. Important conversation. I could talk forever about that one. Um, and like you said, it's not necessarily like, oh, right. I shouldn't be mean to myself. And so now right. I'm not. Check. It's, 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it can be a longer process, but really just starting even with that, um, just noticing that we're doing it is really impactful. Right. And I, one of my favorite like rubrics is like, would you say that to your friend? Yeah. You know, like would I tell my friend, like her arms are looking bad? Absolutely not. Never. Like I want to be my friend's biggest cheerleaders and I will build her up or them up as much as I possibly can. So how can we come to ourselves with that attitude, you know? So I think that, that helped me a lot. Like, how would you talk to your best friend or your daughter? You know Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. Could you imagine like, I would like viciously attack somebody if I heard them saying the thing oh. that people say to themselves. Like if somebody was saying to my friend, the stuff that I used to say to myself, I'd be like, oh no, we're, we're not off. doing that. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're not doing that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a really great um, kind of litmus test for ourselves to be like, okay, right. would I say this to my daughter? Would I say this to my friend? Would I actually say this to anybody, right? To anybody, but to myself. Anybody. We probably exactly. Really good litmus yeah. test. So you brought up Rosie and that's definitely something I want to talk about. Um, this is a tool you have developed to help women of all ages and all life stages with their sexual health. So tell us yeah. what is Rosie and then tell us how it works. Yeah. So Rosie is an app that women can download on their phones and you can download it completely for free. So when you onboard, there's a welcoming message about how you are not alone, that 43% of women are struggling with a sexual problem. And to me, that still blows my mind that nearly half of us have something that we you know, need to and want to work on, but still we're, we're struggling with where to go for these problems. And that's really why I wanted to create Rosie. So my background, as you mentioned, is that I'm an OBGYN and I was hearing these complaints in the office all the time. And it was breaking my heart because not only did I not know how to help my patients, but they were struggling so much with all of this shame, all of this anxiety, feeling like their relationship was doomed, feeling like they were such a terrible person. But I was hearing these same stories over and over and over. And so it's like, hey, we can't all be doomed. All of our relationships are not over. Like we're not all broken. Like there's so much more commonality than there is, you know, disaster um, in these stories. And so the platform really is meant to connect women with evidence-based education so that you're not having to, you know, Google about a sexual problem. Cause I don't think most of us want to do that. It's also meant to connect women with behavioral tools. So kind of like we talked about with erotica earlier, there is a library of erotica on the platform, but we also do a lot of work around cognitive behavioral therapy exercises, which are proven to improve sexual health around communication with healthcare providers and with partners, because so many of us find these things just completely impossible to talk about. Um, and then we also have, um, community where women, just like you were talking about on a forum, can discuss these things with one another and coaching both in a group format, which is my personal favorite, because I love that connection that happens when you hear someone mirroring back your own story like that, that just warms my heart so much. But then we also have personal coaching too, if you want to create a really specific action plan with, you know, someone who's an expert and really non-judgmental and open about and has heard everything. Um, then that's what the personal coaching is there for. So really meant like the way that I imagine Rosie is an island of evidence-based sexual health resources for women you know, ages 17 to 100, um, when I hope we're all still having sex and enjoying, you know, that part of our lives. So um, yeah, that's what Rosie's all about. How did you come up with the name Rosie? Well, so the idea for Rosie and the name of Rosie came to me in a car ride home. I was in the car with my husband and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I want to do this. And then like dot, 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 maybe like 10 minutes later. And I think I want to call it Rosie. And the reason why is because Rosie to me is optimistic. Rosie can be the name of a person. So like, I love the idea of Rosie, the platform having a personality that makes you feel 
warm and comforted and connected. Rosie also has a romantic connotation, like offering a rose, but also from like a, a <laughs> geeked out doctor perspective, when they're when the vulva and vagina become aroused, they are have they're engorged with blood and they have, you know, more of a red or rosy tint. So there's like oh. many, many meanings. And the fact that we were able to like get the name and trademark it is still like crazy to me. Um, because it's it's a really easy word to say. It's a common, you know, it's yeah. a common word to spell. So I'm really proud of the name of it. And I still like am really drawn to it um even now. So Oh, that's fantastic. And how can someone find it? If they're like, okay, I'm interested in exploring this, how do they find it? Yeah. So you can go to the app store, both in Google and Apple and just search Rosie, R-O-S-Y. Um, or you can go to our website, which is meetrosie.com, M-E-E-T-R-O-S-Y.com. And on Instagram, we are at meet underscore Rosie, R-O-S-Y. So you can find us any of those places, get to know us better as a brand and, and our mission, which is to erase shame and isolation for women across the globe that are experiencing sexual problems. That's fantastic, Lindsay. That's really fantastic. Um, Thank what, you. What a, <clears throat> it's one of those things I feel like there's so many, you think you meet people and you're like, what do you do for work? Right. And yeah. <laughs> when you put it all together, it's just like, so many different areas of our lives that need experts, right? That need somebody who's yeah. passionate about like solutions and tools. And I, right. I'm really thrilled that you have, you know, found this passion and found a way to help people and connect with them in such a way. I think it could, I think, um, done wrong. It could really like turn people off. Like I don't sure going on a website about sex. Like, <laughs> right. Totally. That, right. But you do it in just such a classy way. And I love that it's evidence-based. Like, what a fantastic yeah. thing. Like, I think women are going to feel really comfortable. Just when you go on your website, you can tell like, okay, people are going to feel comfortable here. Um, well, so I hope that's our dream. Thank you so much for saying that because we that is exactly how we want women to feel is comfortable and safe and cared for um, and not, not alone. You know, I think that's yes. the biggest deal. That's a big one. That's a big one. I think a lot of women, specifically women in menopause, definitely feel alone. Like they don't even know what's happening to them, right? let alone connect that it's happening to so many other women and that there are tools out there to help them. Exactly. Well, and that's honestly, oh, I was just going to harp on why that's why education on these topics is where we all have to start and why it's so important. Because when you're going through something tumultuous and you don't even know what it is or how to name it, you can't search for it. You can't find groups that are going through it. You can't find solutions because you don't even know how to name it. So that's why this education, the menopositivity tour, you know, you, all of the work that you do is so important to just help people put a name to an experience so that they can connect with the, the, the resources that they need and deserve. So I appreciate you so much. Oh yeah. That's really important. Um, you know, when my very first symptoms of menopause appeared, I had never connected. First of all, I was in my early forties. So that to me was something that yeah. Old and I'm putting old women. Older people, yeah, and I had never ever heard the term perimenopause, let alone thought that I was in it. And my first two symptoms were vertigo, which that's terrifying, yeah. and electric zapping sensations, which you can get all over your body. Um, but I had them in my head. And so wow. I was like, something bad is happening. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not definitely dying. Foot here. Yeah, I'm dying. Um, yeah. some kind of diagnosis is imminent and it's gonna be a really bad one. Um, and so really connecting women to the information so they can wait. How less scary would it be for a woman who's exactly. 40, 41, 42, 43, 45 to know like, oh, here's a whole list of things that could potentially happen. And if one happens like, all right, noted, 
that could be menopause. Like obviously still talk to your doctor, but it's not as scary when you realize like, wow, this is a normal life stage and right. I'm expecting these things. So. Yeah. Good point for sure. Look, I want to end here. I always like to ask everyone who comes on my podcast what they're doing to move their body and work out so it can inspire uh, the other women here. So what do you do uh, for workouts, for moving your body these days? Yes. Oh my gosh. I love to work out. I love to work out so much more than I love to eat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I work out with a trainer, um, who I have been with for so long and actually she became my patient. I delivered her babies. Oh. So we're thick as thieves at this point. Um, and also I have a Peloton, which I became obsessed with when I found out about power zone training. I had a Peloton for years. And then one of my friends wrote another physician roped me into power zone training. And that has been like a kindling to my fire. I love it so much. So what those are the two. Um, I love the accountability. I love the, the schedule. Like I'm just a very kind of scheduled person. And if I don't have a schedule, then I'm probably not going to do it. Um, and I love the community component. Once again, like it's so great to have so many people kind of doing the same thing to pump you up or, you know, to ask questions of. Um, so that's a huge piece of it for me too. Oh, that's fantastic. And what's your, what's one of your favorite lifts to do when you're working out with your trainer? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I guess, um, you know, we do a lot of like kettlebell stuff. And so I, I don't know, is there like a fate? I don't know if I have a favorite lift. I just like to get together and talk. So she just <laughs> like makes me work out while we talk. And that's what I love most about it is we're just like get to gab for an hour. That's fantastic that you have that, right? So that, you know, on yeah. days when you might not feel like doing it, you're like, oh, okay, I get to go talk yeah. with my friend. Exactly. Like I'm going anyway, so I might as well work out while I'm there. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Harper, remind everybody again, where can they connect with you um, and Rosie? Yes. Okay. So my Instagram is at Lindsay Harper MD, but my name is spelled differently. So check show notes. Um, okay. the, the, the app can be downloaded in either app store, Rosie R O S Y. Um, and then our website is meetrosie.com M E T R O S Y.com. And I'd love to, you know, hear any feedback. We have a whole program specifically for menopausal women that we created with a Harvard trained, um, you know, uh, menopause doctor, where she talks about specifically menopause and sexual function and all the different um, treatments available to help people get where they want to be. Fantastic. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. This has been so fun. Great to reconnect, Kim. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I hope you found it motivational, inspirational, educational, organizational. If you did find value in this episode today, it would mean a great deal to me if you would leave a rating and review on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to this episode on. It really does help to get this podcast in front of other people. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you.